The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Right. Today, as I mentioned to you uh, in the last lecture, we're going to really be focusing uh, quite some depth into this paper by Sunny Shi. So uh, I would say that it is um, you know, one of my all-time favorite papers. Uh, and in particular, from the standpoint of discussing a paper in class, I think it is uh, absolutely wonderful. It uh, is, I think, clearly written. It explains why they did all these things. And they checked all sorts of possible sources of, uh, of, of perhaps being led astray. Uh, and uh, I think it was, a, it was a huge amount of work. And it was a, a technical tour de force when it came out. All right, so, before this, I would say single molecule biophysics, uh, by which I mean both, um, both single molecule fluorescence, i.e. detection, as well as single molecule manipulation uh, were almost exclusively uh, in vitro techniques. Right? So we took purified components, and then we, uh, we studied uh, the fluorescence or the, you know, with the mechanical properties and so forth of, uh, of these molecules uh, in um, the equivalent of a test tube. But really, you know, in the glass slides where we just had the purified components, you know, so no living cells. Right, and I think we got a lot of insight into the dynamics of um, molecular motors, transcription, translation, and so forth. Um, and I think that many of us in the field thought that, uh, thought that this paper was essentially not possible. Okay. All right, so I, was, uh, I did my PhD from, uh, well, in the single molecule area from kind of like 2000 to 2005 I graduated. And, um, and indeed, I, I did a little bit of work in this uh, area of single molecule fluorescence, and um, I was basically unsuccessful, even just doing this kind of in the in vitro setting. You know, my lab, uh, it was Carlos Bustamante. We did uh, primarily single molecule manipulation. We were uh, playing with this, uh, uh, the single molecule fluorescence. And eventually, uh, people in the lab got it to work. But I would say that my foray into it was maybe unsuccessful. Um, so I, I, was, um, I had a very healthy uh, respect for the challenges that are involved in doing single molecule fluorescence. Uh, and, and the thought of, of doing this in live cells was um, you know, very scary. And I'd say that many of us thought that it was not going to work. Uh, and indeed, uh, this project was one, uh, and, and the general goal of studying uh, kind of single molecule dynamics in living cells is something that Sonny's group had been working on, I think, for many years. And so it, it, it indeed was very hard. But, um, but then there were these two papers that came out, both from Sonny's lab, actually. Uh, uh, and they came out uh, in both, I think, January of 2006, uh, one in science, one in nature, demonstrating uh, not one way of doing this, but rather two ways of getting single molecule uh, dynamics inside living cells. Right? Uh, so we're, today, obviously, we're going to be primarily talking about this uh, paper by Yu and Xiao. Uh, but if you're interested in these things, I encourage you to check out Long Kai's paper, which is also uh, uh, published, I would say, at the same time. And that was uh, based on a kind of a microfluidic assay, where uh, instead of doing this single molecule fluorescence in, within cells, instead, uh, by trapping the cells in small volumes and then using more traditional enzymatic assays, such as uh, this like, beta-gal type assay, enclosed in a small volume, it still is possible to study, once again, this sort of bursting dynamics uh, in E. coli. And also, they did it uh, in yeast and demonstrated that it's kind of a, a generally practical uh, assay. Okay. So, uh, if, uh, yeah, so if you're interested in, in those papers, I encourage you to check it out. But uh, you know, for me, it was, this was really uh, an eye-opening thing. I, uh, you know, so I graduated. Uh, with my PhD in December of 2005. And then I, I went to a conference in, um, in Cambridge, England, 
where, where Sonny presented, uh, presented this work. And, uh, and I think that it, it really um, blew many of our minds, this idea that you could start to get uh, this sort of data within live cells. And indeed, uh, Sonny's uh, group over the next five years uh, did a whole series of, of what I consider to be beautiful studies, uh, probing, for example, the dynamics of this lack repressor binding, unbinding uh, onto the, uh, this promoter, uh, the search process, uh, and, uh, and uh, yeah, a whole, whole slew of, I think, really beautiful things. So uh, we're not going to have a chance to go over all those papers in this class, but, uh, but I encourage you to, uh, to look at them. Okay. All right, can, can somebody say what the primary challenge is with doing kind of single molecule fluorescence in, uh, in these live cells? So why, why is it that I did not think that this was going to work? And uh, now I know you're, you're, you know, you're, you're going to have to uh, give an argument that ends up not being true. But, um, yeah, but why, you know, why, why is it this is, this is such a hard, hard thing to do? Yeah? Right. OK, so one is that you know, you know, there's laser <coughs> to the cell. And then you know, there's a big question mark. You know, is this you know, is this going to be okay, right? And indeed, um, we certainly know that at one limit, it's not going to be okay, right? I mean, if you take the lasers at you know Los Alamos National Lab, right? You know, you're gonna you can vaporize a cell, right? So it's certainly you know, enough power, and the cell is going to be dead for sure, right? And so the question is maybe, oh, can you can you dial down the laser power enough to get uh, together? And indeed, this is something that they talk about uh, their their strategy in this paper. Um, other challenges, problems? Right. So in principle, there are many molecules, right? So, um, so we have to figure out some way of s separating them, either temporally or spatially. And in indeed, in this paper, they actually do uh, they do both, right? So there's there you know we say many okay many molecules, and of course we have to decide what we mean by this because ultimately we're interested in doing single molecule measurements. Right, but then of course the plural of single is many, and the question, you know, how many is too many for us to study, and so forth, right? You know, so you know, and the question here is maybe like how to separate, right? Yeah, what are other other challenges in this? Diffusion. All right, there's diffusion, right? So and. and we're going to talk more about this for sure. Well, and actually, all of these things we're going to talk more. Diffusion and, and this uh, and why is this a problem though? Fast. Right. So it's diffusion is maybe fast, and right. And so this is going to end up being relevant for kind of signal to noise reasons, right? Right. So what are the um, yeah? So what's the signal and what's the noise? So this autofluorescence, okay, and so in particular, this noise is autofluorescence from what? Cell. From the cell. And, and, what's, and what's the signal, just to be clear here? Right, so this photons from, uh, in this case, uh, the GFP-like molecule, yeah, yeah. Right, so if a, all right, so we want to do single molecule measurements, right? We want to be able to, to measure, detect 
the, the fluorescence coming from this uh, single fluorescent protein. Right? Now the question is, does a, does a, if it's a single molecule, does that mean that it's going to send out a, just a single photon? No, right? I mean, they, maybe they come out as single photons, but you know, we, we can detect them, right? Now, it's, the challenge in this, in some ways surprisingly, is not that the number of photons is so small, right? So does anybody have any rough sense of maybe how many photons are we collecting from each of these? Many thousands? Yeah, so yeah, I'd say many thousands, OK. Right, in particular, okay, so we'll say many thousands. So it could be you know, maybe 10 to the 4 per second or so. I, you know, it, it depends on, again, the laser intensity. Uh, many thousands of photons collected. So yes? That's before photopreciation. Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh, and, 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 and indeed, the, the, the stronger the intensity of the laser light that you illuminate with, the faster you're going to collect the photons. But it, in general, it won't increase the total number of photons uh, that you collect. Right. So uh, you know, in, the, in these sorts of situations, you, know, you, might, you might get, say, I don't know, we'll say 10 to the 4, plus or minus an order of magnitude, uh, photons per second. And, and they might last for, depending on how long, you know, for 30 seconds or so. You know. And of course, we'll, we'll look at the actual numbers in this paper. But in many of these situations, you know, times 10 to 100 seconds, uh, uh, in this, in this case, it actually bleached faster, right? Um, we'll, we'll see. But th this is kind of what you might be able to get also in there, you know, if you do use inorganic or use organic dyes, rather, right? Um, but this gives you some sense of that there's a fair number of photons that you could, in principle, collect from a single molecule. Right? Now, of course, you might be worried, well, these are the photons that you, you, know, that you shine on your camera, but then your camera won't pick up all of them, right? The way that we think about this is uh, by what's known as the quantum efficiency. Okay. Quantum efficiency tells us basically this is the, um, this is the fraction, uh, fraction of photons detected. But uh, with, with modern cameras, actually, this thing is approximately 1. All right, so it's 0 0.9 maybe with uh, modern cameras, which is, for our purposes, basically 1. Which means that you can, uh, you can detect, actually, a majority of the photons that are hitting, hitting your camera. Okay. So it's not that, from that standpoint, it's not, the number of photons is not actually the problem here. right? You can, you can collect many thousands of photons. Okay. So the problem is really detecting that signal over the background signal, over the autofluorescence of, um, of the cell. Okay. And indeed, in the, if you look at the, um, the, the figure, figure one, well, you can very clearly see the autofluorescence of the cell. Right? So the, the fluorescence where there's the cell is, is indeed much larger than where uh, there's no cell. Okay? So the autofluorescence is, is the, I'd say, the primary challenge here. Of course, there are many, many others. All right, so this is um, potentially a big problem. Um, and in order to get around that, there are all these other strategies that, uh, that the authors kind of uh, implement. Yes? Yeah, so it's just many things are weakly fluorescent, I think is the um, short answer. And this, this also depends upon 
For example, their uh, cells are more autofluorescent if you grow them in rich media than in minimal media for some mysterious reason. And yeah, but it's really just that there are many things that are weakly fluorescent. And it's just there are a lot of, mole lot of molecules in the cell. Yeah, so, uh, right. So indeed, uh, in the case, if, if you put in a fluorescent protein or a, a fluorescent dye, then it has rather well-defined absorption and emission spectra, right? Uh, and uh, each individual absorber emitter indeed has a well-defined absorption and emission profile. But then in the cell, there are just many, many, many of them, which means that there's rather what you might call a broadband uh, absorption and broadband uh, emission. Okay, so it, Indeed, in some wavelengths, it's, it's, it's worse than in others, but it's not that you get well-defined uh, peaks the way you do for a single, uh, a single kind of fluorophore. I guess I was just wondering, you filter out Yeah, so indeed, in, in this case, they are, um, they're exciting with a laser. So at least on the excitation, it's as precise as you can hope for. Right? And indeed, on, on the emission, um, they will use uh, They'll use a filter, so that they're not going to be absorbed. You know, it's probably a few tens of nanometers that they're, they're looking at. Uh, so in that sense, they, they are filtering out, but still there is autofluorescence. Okay. Okay. All right. Now, uh, getting at this question of the, the, single, um, the single molecule uh, fluorescence, the limitations, diffusion, and so forth, uh, it's always valuable uh, to have a sense of scale in anything that you're ever doing. All right. So just to, let's, let's wake up by reminding ourselves how big is a protein. All right. So a typical protein. Typical protein. And for now, we'll say EG, for example, GFP or whatever. All right. We're not going to give you very much time to think about this, but um, I just want to make sure that um, we all keep track of senses of scale in the world. Okay. All right. Ready? Three, two, one. All right. So we got some Bs, Cs, Ds. All right. Um, wow. We got a lot of, a lot of, uh, surprisingly wide, wide range actually. <laughs> okay. Well, we also have the mirror image problem over here. Okay. Uh, okay. So, um, right. Uh, all right. So, indeed, uh, I'll say this is this is a typical. Um, this is kind of what. Uh, this is a typical protein size. Okay. Okay. So it's a few nanometers. Right? You know, depending on you know, there are some that get that get larger. You know, if, especially if you're thinking about a long. You know, there are some well structural. Pro you know, of course, if you're, if you're talking about Filaments, they can be, they can you know, extend. You know, but if you're talking about a typical globular protein, we're it's, a, it's a few nanometers in diameter. Okay. Now, the question is, if we, let's, let's say that this is a fluorescent protein, like GFP. Now, what we do is we, we look at it, right? And we're going to get some fluorescent spot. So this is plotting the intensity 
as a function of uh, the position, right? So this is the intensity i as a function of position x. Okay. Now the question is, what is going to be the size of the spot? All right, we conveniently have some size scales up on the board. All right, I'll let us think about this for eight seconds. All right, ready? Three, two, one. OK, we have a majority of the group that is saying that indeed it's going to be D. So this is what's known as a diffraction-limited spot. All right, and this is, uh, this is a fundamental physics limitation, right? that if you are imaging something with light that is of some wavelength, lambda. This is of order lambda over two, right? You know, it depends on numerical aperture or objective and so forth. But let, you know, it's of order of lambda and a little bit less, maybe. Okay. Right. And indeed, the uh, the wavelength of the light that's being used here is, uh, you know, they're exciting with 500 something, and then um, let me just. 514, OK. Right. So indeed, what happens is that we shine in light. So this is the la lambda incident uh, that is uh, 514. Okay. Now there's going to be some GFP that looks like this. right? And then we're going to get out lambda emission. All right, question, is the emitted light going to be equal? To, is it the wavelength going to be 514 nanometers? Yes or no? Ready? Three, two, one. No. No. All right. Lambda emission. Is it going to be greater than or less than lambda incident? Ready? Three, two, one. Greater. greater than. All right. So this thing is greater than 514. All right. Now, if you just have scattering off something, all right. So let's say that we had a gold particle and we shine. You know, would what's going to be the relationship between Lambda incident, lambda emission. Is it possible to have something have the same wavelength come out as you put in of some object? You know, I mean, base. I mean, yes. I mean, if you just have something, a mirror, you can get back. You know, so it's, it is a, it is possible. You know, but in general, there's going to be some dissipation. You know, and it's a question of how much and so forth, right? But certainly for something like fluorescence. You, uh, you have a higher energy photon than you have a photon that's emitted. Okay. Right. And of course, energy goes as 1 over lambda. Right. Okay. Now, this is, this is useful uh, because you can actually uh, spectrally separate things. Right. All right. I just want to highlight, though, that if this thing is, if this separation is of order 300 nanometers, and our protein is that. So there's our GFP, nicely drawn, not even quite to scale. And to scale, it's actually even smaller, right? But it's a factor of 100 in size, right? This thing is only 3 nanometers 
in size. 300 nanometers wide. Right? Now, it's, it's, it's important to be clear about what this means, this diffraction-limited spot. Right? The first thing to note is that what it means is that if you have two proteins, right? so for example, I add another one over here, that it's going to be very hard to tell that we have those two proteins next to each other. Right? Because the resulting fluorescence pattern will look essentially the same. Okay. Will it be exactly the same? What's going to change? The intensity. The intensity. Right? So the intensity you expect to go up by a factor of two, absent some interaction between. You can, in principle, get interactions there. But let's, for now, assume that there's no interaction. Right? Then the intensity would indeed go up by a factor of two. But uh, unless you're very careful about all of your optics and so forth, it's actually a challenge to use this intensity uh, alone to, to distinguish these things. Okay. Right. It's only, right, so the statement with a diffraction-limited spot is that you, you need these two proteins to be separated by something like lambda over 2 in order for you to see, start to see a separation. Because right? then you have something that looks like this, something that looks like this, and then the sum of those two indeed You know, you know, so you, you know, so you can say, all right, well, you know, it looks like there are two molecules there. Right. Right. Now, I just want to, okay, and, the, and the, the, the notion of a lot of these so-called super-resolution techniques is figuring out a way to distinguish these things. And we'll maybe say something about that in a moment. But I just want to highlight that if we come back to the situation where we have a single protein there, right? Now, the question is, how can we tell? Or to, to how accurately can we tell where that protein is if we know that there's just a single, single protein there? Now, in particular, this size of the spot is telling us something, right? But it, it might not uh, be quite as strong of a limitation as it appears at first glance. Okay? And that's because in this case, well, maybe I'll bring it back. What we, what we see is a big spot, 300 nanometers kind of wide. Right? But you know, if we see this and we know it's just a single protein there, I mean, could the, could the protein be over here? No. If the protein were over here, then the spot would look, it would be, look it would, right, it would be over there, right? So, uh, so actually, even though the, the size of the spot is, you know, it's kind of 300 nanometers, in principle, if you want to know where that protein is, if you know there's just a single protein, well, in that case, what you want to know is where's the center of that distribution? Okay. And that problem, well, the width of the distribution is relevant, okay? but there's something else that's also very relevant. Okay. So, and quite generally, if you measure some quantity n times, and you want to know, right? So you, you, right? So you're measuring the height of Min entering the army, or whatever. You know, and you want to know if you want to know the mean, right? Right. What is it that determines how the, your your uncertainty around the mean? 
Right? There's the sample size. Okay. Now, does the width of the distribution enter? Yeah. All right. So in general, your uncertainty in, in the mean um, is going to go with the width of the distribution, sigma of whatever, um, divided by, and what do I put down here? Hmm? Root n, where n is the number of samples that we take. What this is saying is that as we sample this distribution more and more, does the, does the standard deviation of the distribution, does it go to 0? No. Right, as we, and, and, you know, these are all trivial statements, but I can't tell you how many times I see this getting confused. Okay? So if you measure many, many, many times, you get a very beautiful distribution. Right? The width of the distribution, the sigma, that you get very accurately. Right, so it's true also that your uncertainty in the width, go, it, that actually does go to zero. But the width of it, the width doesn't go to zero. Right? The width is the width of the distribution. Right? But your uncertainty in the mean, right, that goes down as 1 over root n. Right? And what is n in the case of our detection business here? It's kind of like the number of photons. Right? Now, of course, in the actual experiment, we don't get precisely this distribution. Instead, it's kind of um, sort of quantized somehow spatially because we're actually detecting it on a CCD chip. All right, so you can go and do the math, figure out how it, everything behaves. But actually, that's not as much of a limitation as you might have expected. All right? In many cases, the pixel size on the image plane is actually something like 100 nanometers. Right? So this distribution that you measure, although the, in principle it looks like this, what you actually measure is something that looks like well, maybe I should. No. Something like that, right? Uh, because you have, you have discrete uh, pixels on the, on the CCD, right? And, and you, it, it feels that that should just kind of totally, totally screw you. But it's, it, if you go and you do the math, you find it's not, it's not as bad as you might expect, right? So broadly, you do get essentially something that goes as, as 1 over root n, where n is the number of photons. And if you collect 10 to the 4 photons, right, that actually it's a lot of photons. Okay? So if we want to know the, the uncertainty in the, the center of our distribution, well, this thing, all right, you know, we might have something that's of order 300 nanometers here. We take the square root of 10 to the 4. Right, so we get to divide by something like 100. Okay? So this is, you know, and these are all very rough numbers, right? But the point is that we can get down to nanometer resolution in terms of the, uh, the uncertainty with which we know the mean of that distribution. Yes? Yeah, yeah, right. So yeah, no, th this is, it's surprising. The thing is that even with just two, in principle, we can be very sensitive, right? I mean, because if, you know, because you actually, sometimes people actually do just put it on a quadrant photo detector where you, you really only get essentially binary information each two. But even with just two, if I say, oh, OK, well, it looks like this, or if, I, if it looks a little bit, if it looks like that, if, if, I, if there's no error in our measurements there, then you can actually uh, get that location very well. Yeah, so it's, it's sort of, but it's surprising. I, I, I'm not going <laughs> to lie. Uh, yeah, but even with, this, even with this quantization of some sort that's due to the 
the CCD, you can still get that to nanometer resolution. Uh, and, it's, and it just, it doesn't, I mean, it does, your, your resolution is worse than it would be if you knew actually exactly where that each photon was hitting, but not as, not as it's not very sensitive, actually. Yeah. Um, and indeed, in the presence of, I mean, this is a highly technical comment, but in the presence of, uh, of read noise and other kinds of noise in the CCD, actually, um, in many cases, it's actually better to have somewhat larger pixels. Uh, then, uh, you know, again, than you would expect, right? You know, so th these are these are balancing many different things. You know, people have thought carefully about this stuff, but yeah, in the end, a hundred nanometer pixel is actually fine. Um, and just to be clear, it's a hundred nanometers at the at the sample plane, right? So it's typically of order ten microns uh, size on the the camera itself. Okay, so the physical size of each of each of the pixels on the camera is ten, you know, ten microns within a factor of two between 5 and 20, but then uh, you get 100x typically magnification at the, at the sample plane. Okay. So to be clear, 10 microns divided by 100 is 100 nanometers. Is, is, is everybody following those? OK, I don't want to. All right. right. The key thing, three you can ignore, but the, the key thing to notice here is this thing that's in here, which is nanometer resolution. Okay. Um, and it's been known for, for decades that this, is, um, that this is in principle possible and so forth. Uh, but um, I think that within the realm of single molecule biophysics, uh, it's, it was really popularized. And, uh, and there are uh, some very nice papers by uh, Ahmet Yildiz et al. Uh, where they, where they, uh, they attach single molecules onto like the, um, the so-called heads of various motors as they were uh, walking along tracks and showing that these motors are walking kind of like this by attaching fluorophores here. And then you can really just see it, see them walking, right? Uh, okay. any, any questions about why it's in principle possible to get nanometer resolution from this process? Doesn't this assume that the protein is 100% static? Yes. Yes. Yeah, indeed. So I'm, right now, I'm assuming that this thing is, is constant. And, and, and the, the question is, like, how, how much movement is a problem? And so then you, you have to, um, yeah. That's right. So indeed, in, in, the, in the case, often you're trading off spatial resolution for temporal resolution, um, and also intensity of your laser and so forth. But in these are experiments, I think that um, what they did is they slowed down the motors quite a lot. Right, so it was limiting ATP. So indeed, the motors in those experiments, I think they were taking steps of order every second or 10 seconds. I mean, it was, it was as slow as you can go and still. Um, yeah, so then at each location, I think, yeah, they were collecting 10 to the 4 or a few 10 to the 4 photons. Yeah. Um, um, and incidentally, in this case, these are the photons that are being collected. And typically, you would only be collecting um, 10, 15 or so percent of the photons just because the photons are actually being emitted um, everywhere, and, you know, but then you, you, only, you only collect the ones that go back to your objective. Right? Okay. All right. I, I just want to make one comment about, um, about the super resolution techniques that, that have been spreading. All right. So the question here is, well, let's say that you have two proteins next to each other. Um, what can you do? Right. Uh, now, the basic idea of all these temp uh, of all these super resolution techniques is that uh, that if you could you know that if we know that we have a signal from only one protein, then we can actually figure out where it is, right? So what you need to do is figure out a way so that you just have one at a time emitting, 
right? So there are various schemes to make it so that uh, these proteins uh, can either turn on or off. Now, what you can do is if, if just one turns on, you get some photons. You say, OK, this protein is over here. Whereas you, then if later this other uh, protein becomes fluorescent, now you can figure out where that is. Right? And so you do this basic super-resolution localization uh, multiple times, and then you can identify where, um, where things are. And, um, and uh, yeah, so, so the, um, all the microscopy guys really like to have, uh, have fun, um, have, have fun uh, acronyms. Okay, so um, in oh, so these guys when they did it, they they called it uh, Fiona. I don't know if you right. So uh, this is a uh, is it DreamWorks or this, this is with the 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 green ogre like guy and then the redhead Shrek. Shrek. All right, so Shrek. So Fiona was the redhead, um, and it's this stands for fluorescent imaging with one nanometer accuracy. Right. Um, and then, and then indeed, uh, a group at, uh, at, at UCSF then developed Shrek, which is simultaneous high-resolution imaging something. OK, I can't remember how it ended. But um, yeah, so, um, right, so these, uh, the, the super-resolution techniques, they, uh, they called them, um, so Xiao Wei Zhuang at Harvard called hers uh, storm, uh, stochastic reconstruction of something or another. Um, so this is this is the Zhuang method, you know, and and, and then Eric Betzig called his palm, which st stood for something else. Um, I don't know, uh, but in particular the uh, and Betzig, I think there, there's a long history of of the hardcore microscopists somehow like going like developing their techniques in their garages. I don't know what it is, but there, there's there have been a number of these cases, and Betzig I think was one of them. Now now he's at he's at Janelia Farm HHMI and has been developing all sorts of advanced microscopy techniques. Um, so I think that Xiaowei did not develop hers in the garage. Um, but, um, and they're all based on the same principle? Yeah, the, the, yeah it's, all about it's all about temporal. It's a question of um, how, you're how you're getting them to turn on and off. Yeah. Um, Sounds like NMR acronym. Oh, do they also have? Um, cozy, cozy, nosy. Yeah, right, right, for the different sequences or something. of Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, all of these, uh, all these acronyms. I, I, um, I just maybe I just never came up with a good one. So then I, um, <laughs> but um, yes, bio. Yeah, no, in, indeed. Um, I always like when somebody uses acronyms that I don't know. I always like to, you know, say, oh, all these TLAs are tricky or whatever. And then, you know, they, they don't, you know, and I say, oh, it's you know, three-letter acronym. <laughs> okay, all right. Um, I, I very much like self-referential humor, um, which. Um, Okay, so um, all right, so so that, okay, so that's the idea of the super resolution techniques. Okay. Um, all right. Any questions about that before we kind of get back actually to the paper? Okay. Okay. Now, in in this whole discussion, as was pointed out, I, we've been assuming that the protein is not moving around during our imaging time. Okay. So one of the major challenges of doing this whole business in live cells. Is not only is there a lot of uh, autofluorescence, okay, but uh, in addition, uh, you you can't necessarily uh, wait 10 seconds to localize where this thing is because it will have moved somewhere else, right? Uh, and in particular, uh, diffusion is a problem. So, the, can somebody remind us what the um, what 
they did, what the authors did in order to get around the diffusion problems. I'm sorry, what was it? Yeah, right. They attached it to the membrane. Okay. Uh, and why why does that help? Yeah, that perfect. Yeah, proteins diffuse slower than the membrane. You know, and I think that you know, depending on the organism, there's more or less diffusion and so forth, right? But um, but they uh, what they did is they anchored to the membrane um, to, to to reduce diffusion. I'll just say reduces diffusion. And indeed, just from a back of the envelope calculation, you can convince yourself that you probably are going to need to do this. Right? So in particular, let's ask, uh, in, in this paper, actually, they, um, they image the floor for, uh, for, um, for 0.1 seconds, right? Does that sound right? Okay, so the, um, the image uh, um, collected. So delta t is equal to 0.1 seconds. All right, so the question is, how far will a protein typically diffuse in 0.1 seconds? All right. Well, you know, this is why we have diffusion calculations. All right, so if you, uh, first of all, all right, so the, uh, the diffusion coefficient, we're going to talk more about diffusion uh, in, a, in a few weeks. But uh, you should also, in principle, be able to calculate how these things go. So in general, this is going to be a kT over some gamma, which tells us how hard. All right, so kT is, uh, is thermal energy. Okay. So uh, thermal, and it, at room temperature, uh, kT is around 4.1 picanewton nanometers in, in some unit. There are many different ways you can write that. Uh, whereas gamma tells us just how hard it is to push something. In particular, uh, if you push something with some force, it will move with some velocity. Right? Now, does, is, is this consistent with freshman mechanics? No, it's not. Okay, so um, is, that, you know, is, that, does any, is that a problem? Or are we all, you know? Yeah, so why, why, why is it that I'm writing this? Right, so solvents exerting a force. That's true, but uh, in the case of freshman mechanics, you know, when we're pushing blocks, it's also true that the other things are exerting forces, right? The tables are, you know, but we still write down, you know, F is equal to MA. Right? So it's not just that other things are exerting forces. Yeah. You're always in a continuum. There's like um, always in a continuum. So we're always surrounded by fluid. Okay. Yeah. So it's always surrounded. All right, but it's, I'm, I'm actually surrounded by fluid now, too. You know, you can wave your arms and feel it. Right, OK, right. So it comes down to the viscosity. You know, and indeed, this is this whole thing about being a low Reynolds number. We're going to talk about this in much more detail uh, in a few weeks when we think about how bacteria swim and so, so forth. But I just want to mention that this is because we're at this low Reynolds number, where uh, the so-called um, inertial forces, like momentum, you know, are, are negligible. All right, sorry. Are, yeah, inertial forces are, ne are negligible. So then it's, it's really, you know, this is in some ways more like uh, Aristotelian physics, all right? But it ends up being true for small objects in, um, in viscous liquids, okay? Now, um, and indeed, this thing, it scales, 
as the radius. So in principle, we can actually calculate roughly um, how, um, how the diffusion coefficient is going to behave as a function of the size of the object and so forth. But um, I'll just tell you that for a protein-sized object in the, in the cell, you might get something like 10 uh, micron squared per second. Okay. Now, already just from units, you can see how the kind of typical diffusion distance has to scale with time, right? And in particular, that you're going to get that the typical kind of distance that you go in, well, a typical distance, we'll say, okay, we'll say square root, goes as the square root of 2 times d times time, right? So you can see that if you multiply the, uh, the time by the d, then you end up with a micron squared. So you have to take a, a square root to get an, something that's a characteristic distance, right? And indeed, this is the kind of math that I can do. So this is, this is of order, order 1 micron. Okay. And how, how big is an E. coli cell? One micron, roughly, right? So it might be a couple microns long, a bit less than a micron in width. And what this is saying is that in 0.1 seconds, which is our exposure time on our camera, you would expect something like GFP to diffuse around roughly the cell volume. Okay, maybe not the entire one, but, um, but a fair fraction of it. What this is saying is that the diffusion really would be a problem, um, even with this relatively short uh, exposure time. Yeah? Yeah, so this is, a, this is assuming that the cytoplasm has a viscosity that's maybe an order of magnitude larger than water. And that's just because the, uh, the inside is, is chock full of proteins and so forth. Um, now, there's a lot of discussion of what the mechanism is of diffusion and transport inside cells, and it may depend on the size. It, it's a very complicated uh, area, but I think that this is, for our purposes, this is a reasonable way to think about it. Yeah, but indeed, the viscosity of the cytoplasm you expect to be significantly more than the viscosity of water. Lower the, oh, the, yeah, yeah like right. 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 So we, uh, in principle, we could, you know, there are technical issues on various sides, right? So of course, you have to say, oh, well, you know, a typical camera, just the shutter of opening, shutting, that actually has some limit. But that's, you can get around that using kind of strobed illumination. You know, there are fancy things you could do. Uh, but there's just a more fundamental thing here, which is that if you, if you, so this is already, you know, 100 milliseconds. If you go down to like, say, one millisecond, then it's true that the protein won't be able to diffuse very far, but then you also just don't collect any photons. All right? I mean, the number of photons you collect scales linearly with the time. right? So at some point, it's just you, you really don't get very, very many photons. And then, you, and then you're, again, you have this extra problem of distinguishing the, um, the fluorescence um, from the autofluorescence. Right? And I, I just want to maybe mention one more thing. that uh, in, the, in figure one, you can actually see how, how big the fluorescence intensity of, the, uh, of, the, of this Venus protein is as compared to the autofluorescence. And you can see that it, you know, if you decrease that exposure time by even one order of magnitude, you wouldn't be able to see, see them over the background. Right? And that's true even though they, they won't have had a chance to diffuse. It's just that you don't have enough signal. Oh, right. So you can also increase the intensity. right? You know, um, yeah. That's right. Uh, and there, there is some limit to you know, um, how much you can increase the intensity of the laser. <laughs> Um, just because at, there is some cycling time of the, um, of the protein uh, in terms of you, know, you excite it, and then it takes some time before it's going to emit. So that, that actually sets a, a fundamental limit. Uh, yeah, but I think that uh, 
Yeah, I, I don't know enough about the details of this in, this in the sense of whether maybe it would have been possible for them to try to, you know, to adjust these various parameters to do it in some other way. Uh, but um, yeah, but these are all the things you have to consider. Yeah, question? Okay. Okay, all right. So what we have now is uh, some sense. Okay, we need to we need to maybe anchor it to the membrane to, to reduce the diffusion. All right, so they did that, uh, and we'll we'll maybe say something more uh, about this anchoring process in a moment. But first, I want to make sure that <coughs> we're all on the same page in understanding um, their arguments for why this is a single molecule that they're looking at. All right? Can somebody remind us their their primary evidence that this is a single molecule? So the question is, single molecule, all right, we'll say single fluorophore, just to, all right, question mark, how do we know? Right, the intensity drops off suddenly, right? So if you look at the intensity as a function of time, what you see is that uh, it looks like, and then, all right, so there's actually more noise, but this is just to, um, right. Now, this is what it looks like for a single molecule, but we should also be clear of what it would look like if it were many molecules. All right, so this is if it's a single molecule. All right, and this is a bleach, what we call a bleach event. Okay. All right, so the molecule dies for one reason or another, so it goes, you know, some oxygen reaction, something, okay? Now, the question is, what happens if it looks, if, if instead there are many, uh, many molecules? Yeah, all right. So now, but now, okay, so right now what we want to do is imagine, like, let's say that I, we shined light on a bead containing fluorescence, you know, a, a containing fluorescent molecules, right? All right, so I, I'm going to give us some options, <coughs> right? It could be, well, many molecules. Maybe what, OK, it could. Yeah. All right, I'll give you a choice of those three. <laughs> Yes, I'm, I'm asking if instead of it being a, because you know, what happens is in the microscope is you see a spot, right? And the spot is always huge, right? 300 nanometers, right? So there could be one molecule there, or there could be 100. You could fit 1,000 in there, no problem, right? 10 by 10 by 10 molecules, that's still only 30 nanometers. It's still much smaller than diffraction limited spot, right? So just by, you know, of course, if you see something and the, the spot is, you know, 10 microns in width, you can be pretty confident that either your optics suck or you're, um, or you're looking at many molecules, right? But if you see a diffraction-limited spot, then it's not so obvious. And so the question is, if you plot the intensity of a diffraction-limited spot as a function of time, you know, how do you know that it's a single molecule? They claim, oh, well, it's because of this that we don't. But it's always good to be clear, right? What would it look like if it were not, if it were, you know, not a single molecule, if instead it were uh, a collection of molecules? Right. Let's go ahead and vote. Ready, three, two, one. 
Okay, so we have a fair number of different responses. Um, it's, it seems to be a split across the room is the only problem. Um, all right, so I'm not going to have you discuss because I think your neighbors typically agree with you. Um, but yeah, in this case, it's going to be C. And this it was an attempt of mine of drawing uh, what is an exponential distribution. Right? So you'll see exponential decay. Right? So this is uh, typical of processes where something is happening um, at a constant rate over time. And then you're, you're seeing this thing go away. So this could be, for example, uh, Radioactivity is the classic thing we always talk about, that you know, these are random events. If you plot the, the radiation coming off of some source as a function of time, it's going to decay exponentially. Okay. Um, similarly here, now this is, uh, right, again, this is intensity as a function of time. In the case of many molecules, we get this thing that looks like C. Now, there's going to be some time scale here which is telling us about the typical um, time for this uh, bleach event, which we're told is what? 250 milliseconds. Right. And indeed, this is telling us actually that they're, um, they're already illuminating these guys uh, at pretty high intensity, right? because um, 250 milliseconds is not that long. Yes. So is that like it's uh, intensity and dependent or like dependent? Yes. Is it really a function of how many photons are right. so, emitted by each photon? Or? Yeah, so it's not really a function of, of the, I mean, it ends up being a function of the number of photons that are emitted. But that's basically because you know, you're kind of in some ground state. You excite up to this other state. Um, and then you, know, you get this relaxation to a lower state. And then, right, so this is, um, this is the energy of the absorbed photon. This is the energy of the emitted photon. Right? The idea is that each time you go around this cycle, and you, you're, you know, that's one emission cycle, there's some probability that's small, right, of you know, 1 and 10 to the 5 or something like that that, that, that it reacts with oxygen or something that causes it to go into this dark. You know, and it's, in principle, irreversible state. Right? Of course, the, the dynamics of these things can be more complicated, but that's the, that's the zeroth order way of thinking about it. Right. Uh, what that means is that if you that there that's more or less a constant number of photons uh, that you're going to get out. Right. Um, there are many cases where this approximation fails, but yeah. Okay. All right. So this is uh, this single step bleaching is kind of a classic signature of, it, of the fact that you're looking at a single uh, fluorescent molecule. Right. Now. Their, their secondary uh, argument for why this is a single, uh, a single GFP, you know, GFP or Venus they're looking at was what? Now, what was their supporting evidence? Yes? Yeah, the intensity matched what? That's right. So they, 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 what they said is, all right, well, this intensity matched what they measured on a slide, right? just the molecule. You know, but I'd say that, you know, this really is, I would say, supporting evidence, because the intensity of the fluorescence can just be different in different environments. And, you know, and so it's, it, I think that this is the kind of thing that, that it's, um, yeah, there are many ways that this can fail. Right? So I think that, um, in general, we consider this to be the gold standard. 
All right. Now, in their experimental setup, there's something that's, I think, very nice that they do, which is if you look at the This is, uh, now this is the, we'll say, laser illumination. Uh, where here, this is kind of on and this is off. All right. What they do is every three minutes, they illuminate. Okay. And then this, all right, and, and this is not to scale. Because this was 1.2 seconds. All right, so we, we might want to even, you know, there's a separation in there, OK? So they illuminate for 1.2 seconds, and they collect the light for the first 0.1 seconds, right? This is the period where they collect for 0.1. Okay. Can somebody tell us why they might possibly want to do this Shine more light on the sample than um, they need to, right? They're not even, they're not going to, you know, analyze that data, right? Right. So this is an intentional bleaching step. So this part here is to is to bleach, and we'll see that this is actually essential for the way that they're uh, collecting their data. Given everything that we've just said, you should be able to tell me what fraction of the molecules will not be bleached. Okay. All right, so fraction, uh, that survive bleaching. Survive the so-called bleaching step. You can ignore my writing. You should be able to think about it on your own. Right, I'll go ahead and I'll give you uh, 30 seconds to think about this. All right. And I think all the information that you need is in principle written up on the board. Yes? Right, so they, I'm, assuming, I'm assuming that they, they start out being fluorescent. Um, now, over time, we're illuminating them with this laser light, so um, it, eventually they will bleach. Right? But uh, perhaps some of them have, have survived for that entire 1.2 seconds. So if you looked at it after this bleaching step, they would still be fluorescent. All right, maybe another 30 seconds because.
Do you need more time? And let, let me see, see where we are, just so that we can uh, get a sense of things. All right, ready? Three, two, one. All right, great. We're, um, we're roughly uniformly distributed between. Um, all right, it's perfect. So this is an opportunity to turn to your neighbor and discuss. Um, you should, even with uh, back of the envelope calculations in your head, be able to get roughly where this is. But you're also welcome to, if you want to double check, you know, pull out your iPhone, you can use the Google calculator. All right, I'll give you just a minute or two to turn to a neighbor. You should certainly be able to find somebody that uh, disagrees with you. All right, why don't we go ahead and reconvene, because it, uh, it's OK if you're still kind of confused by this. Uh, I'm partly doing this to encourage you to review your probability distributions, because we are going to dive into them uh, rather strongly over the next week. Uh, and so it's good if, you're, uh, if you can't quite remember how these are going to work, it's good to start reviewing now. All right, uh, can I just see where we are? Ready? Uh, three, two, one. OK, so we have some Bs and Cs. Um, all right. I, I, I'm pretty confident it's B, although I'm a little bit worried now. Because all right. So okay. So all right. So what's all right? What's going to happen? Right. So um, basically, the probability that this thing survives as a function of time is the same as essentially the decay and the overall intensity of fluorescence for many molecules over time, right? Because this plot here is really a plot of the fraction of the molecules that have survived as a function of time, right? So in, indeed, the probability of survival for an exponential process like this as a function of time t is going to be equal to e to the um, minus t over some constant time tau. Okay. And what is t in tau? Well, t is this time 1.2 seconds. Right. So we have uh, e to the well, maybe we'll write it like the exponent of. So now we have a minus. We have 1.2 seconds divided by the lifetime in this condition. We're told is 250 milliseconds. So we can write 0 0.25 millisecond or seconds. Right. So this is approximately e to the minus five. Right. 
um, which indeed is equal to what I got is 0.8%, right? So it's around 1%. Okay. Are there any questions about this logic or this calculation? Or Yes? Oh, no, no, no. Oh, sorry, sorry. No, no, no. Yeah, so bleaching, this is a result of, um, of chemical inactivation of the uh, fluorescent protein that is kind of induced by being in this excited state, right? So the idea is that um, if you're shining light on this fluorescent protein, then um, it's going to bleach uh, kind of at a rate that it, you know, is kind of its life distribution of, say, uh, lifetimes is going to be exponential with uh, a time constant of 250 milliseconds. So it's like you're damaging the That's right. That's right. And, but it, it's a one-step process, though. That's what we see here. It's, it's not that the, that individual protein is getting worse and worse as it, it's being used, right? But it's really just that there's some rate that it, it there's some probability per time that it cycles that it is, uh, we'll say for now, irreversibly inactivated. I mean, and you know, there are also all these these so-called blinking events, where fluorescent molecules can can kind of temporarily go into a, a, a non-fluorescent state and then they return. But right now we're talking about these these irreversible steps. Okay. Yeah. Are there any other questions about what you know what I mean by bleaching or this calcula this calculation? Oh, OK, so my, my claim is that 0.8% is very close, is approximately 1%. Oh, there was Yes, sorry. Yeah, no, I, I did something funny here. Yeah, yeah. Um. All right, so this is, um, it's useful to just kind of go through these calculations. And actually, I think that in going through them, you, you kind of really get to get a sense of why they designed their experiments the way they did and everything, right? Um, so the idea is that what they're doing here, every three minutes, they're, they're looking at the cells and they're asking, you know, is there a protein or maybe more than one here? And then they try to kill all of those fluorescent proteins. And then, they, um, and then they look again three minutes later. You know, are there any uh, new proteins that were um, that were made? Yes. So in that short 0.1 second uh, illumination, uh, you can't see the bleach. So you have to. That's right. You don't. Calibrate the intensity with this bleaching event. Yeah. So what they're d really doing is they're asking, how many spots do I see? Okay. Right. They can't know, like, if so in that experiment, they don't know that it's um, it was a single molecule. Um, although you know, I think that in many. Yeah, that, well, that's how they checked to make sure it was a single molecule. Although, I think that actually, in principle here, I think they actually maybe do continue to look at them. Right? Just that it's not part of their analysis. Right? So for many of the cases, they actually do see that this molecule is here, and then it bleaches. And a different molecule was here, and it bleached. Right? So it's just, but then the, what they're really asking is, at the beginning, where, you know, how many you know, fluorescent proteins did I see? And then, um, and I think the camera actually maybe was collecting still during that bleaching step. It's just that it wasn't kind of part of the, their analysis. Is in some ways really just is based on is based on this, um, or you know in other experiments you can go look to confirm that it bleaches single step. You know. 
Okay. All right. So we've we spent a lot of time talking about like the, the general idea of how to design these experiments and so forth. Um, I'm not going to say very much about the design of the experiments, except that you know they uh, they did a number of things, right? They uh, they use this Venus protein that is um, has a faster maturation than uh, than traditional GFP. Um, they also uh, had you know targeted it to the membrane, not by putting Venus into the membrane, right? That would be tricky, I think, but rather by uh, attaching the Venus protein to um, to another protein that is put in the membrane. And indeed, this TSR uh, membrane protein, we're going to be talking about it in a couple of weeks in, uh, when we're discussing uh, the chemotaxis uh, network that is uh, in E. coli for how E. coli find food and so forth. Okay, um, I, I think that in reading these papers, it's it's interesting. Sometimes um, authors make kind of a side comment that just illuminates kind of how difficult everything was, right? And and I think that they had a nice one in here where they said that they you know they were checking with the TSR to make sure that the amount that, that the behavior of the TSR Venus and just Venus um, were similar in terms of the amount of fluorescence, you know, and then um, and they say no notable difference was observed, indicating that the introduction of the TSR sequence does not change the yield of Venus production, right? Uh, which is not the case for many other membrane targeting sequences that we tested, right? So this is like a little uh, add-on onto the sentence that is like, you know, I mean. Some you know six months of somebody's life was <laughs> dedicated to you know trying you know you can just imagine all the you know over coffee their frustration they tried all of these different things and they always got a, you know and for an awful lot of these things I I would have still been very much interested in this study even if the addition of TSR did change the kinetics of you know because I'm because I think that still is very interesting but they really wanted this to be you know just Airtight, or maybe the referees made it. I don't know, but you know, but the, you can tell that they just went to a lot of work to try to find the thing that would, where everything everything would just be um, would be just right. Okay. All right. Now, once once they kind of describe their setup, I, I you know they have this wonderful paragraph that I think, um, you know that you know they say oh you know that these proteins they're generated in bursts and. Uh, the number in the bursts varies, and they're spread, and so forth. And they say, and they, they very nicely tell us, okay, you know, with this data, we can ask four questions, right? Uh, and you know, they say, do these gene expression bursts occur randomly in time? It's going to be yes. How many mRNA molecules are responsible for each gene expression burst under the repressed conditions? One. What is the distribution of the number of protein molecules in each burst? It's going to be geometric, geometrically distributed. And what is the origin of the temporal spread of the individual bursts? Okay. Now, I think that um, this is nice just to give a reader kind of like a heads up of like you know where we're heading. Okay. Um, and uh, right, the origin of the temporal spread is actually uh, they're arguing is actually the Venus maturation time. All right. So in that case, uh, they actually take advantage. The fact that there's a finite time for maturation of the Venus ends up allowing them to measure the bursts in an interesting way. All right. Before we get into the details of that, though, I want to. Um, Make sure that we're all clear about what they mean by a burst, because this is something that is—it's—it's it's oddly, um, it feels like it's the most trivial statement ever. But um, I think what we're going to find is that there's a lot of confusion about it. Okay. Uh, all right. So this—this this is a question of how is it that you go from the data to the quantities that they plot and that they're interested in? Right. We want to get a sense of how many proteins are made in each one of these bursts. Right? And so they have in figure 3b, they plot the number of protein molecules produced, number 
um, proteins produced. Okay, it's a function of time. Right, and they have you know these things that you know this was a cell division event. Right, and here they say we have two, four. Right, and here at 25 minutes. We have this thing here, and it looks like. All right. And then this thing goes on, right? And there's, um, you know, at 50, we have another, okay, and then so forth, okay? This is a zoom in of, of figure 3B, one, one of the top panel. All right, so what I want to know is, um, what is the size of the first burst? You can either look at my beautifully drawn illustration, or you can look at the paper in front of you. All right, so this is a paper analyzing the size distribution of protein bursts observed in living cells. Right? That's the point of this paper. Right? Um, now the question is, from the data that they're collecting, we want to know what is the size of the protein burst, the first protein burst. Now, there's no calculation for you to do, it, you know, at least not much of one. But um, so I, I, you know, so I think so I'm not going to give you maybe any more time <laughs> to figure this out. Uh, so let's let's see where we are. Ready? Three, two, one. All right. So we got, um, you know, at least a majority of the group is 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 saying that it's, um, yeah, it's indeed three. Okay. Now. The, the issue here is that the, the way that the experimental design is working is that every three minutes, what we're asking is, how many Venus molecules uh, kind of folded in that previous three minutes? And then any of them that there are, we count, and then we kill them. right? And then the next, and, and indeed, what happened here is that every three minutes, they're asking this question. No proteins produced, no protein. You know, and then here, oh, they see one. Okay. Now, that's not yet a protein burst. That's, that's maybe a protein burst, but it could be that we're in the middle of a protein burst. And indeed, what we see is that the next time point, the next three minutes, we see, oh, actually, now there's two uh, uh, new proteins that were produced in that next three minutes. Right? So indeed, this whole thing is a protein burst. So we got 1 plus 2. So that was the calculation I was referring to. All right. Now, um, and so what they're plotting is, this, is the distribution of these different protein burst sizes. Okay. Now, this is a small protein burst. They see some that get up to be 10, 15. Right? And that corresponds to some of these cases where they see uh, 
you know, something that looks, for example, more like Yeah, question. Yeah, right, right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, I think that this is, and, and ultimately, they, um, the, first of all, okay, the number of protein bursts per cell cycle per hour in these conditions is, uh, is of order one, right? And so that, and then the, the width, the time of a protein burst is five-ish, five, seven minutes or, you know, something like that typically. Right? So this, is, this gives you a sense of how frequently they will overlap. Right? And indeed, what you expect from this is you know, that 15% you know, of them are actually, that they, that they see as one burst might actually be, have been two, though. Right? Uh, it's also worth mentioning that, uh, right. so that, 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 what I just said is in the model where you know that it's always just one mRNA that is produced each time. So they, they, what, they, what they say is they think is that, uh, the promoter is tightly repressed by the lac repressor, right? Every now and then the lac repressor falls off, and it's going to bind again, right? But some fraction of that time, uh, when uh, the repressor unbinds, you get the RNAP binding, and then you get uh, a transcription event, right? And they think that in general it is just one mRNA that is produced there, so just a single RNA polymerase bound and made an mRNA. But I'm sure that some fraction of the time it was actually two that were produced during that time. And that, those would certainly show up as one protein burst, right? Because it would be two, you know, the lifetime of the mRNAs in this situation is of order what? Yeah, it was, I think, one and a half minutes, maybe? It was short. Uh, yeah, yeah, one and a half minutes, right? Uh, what that means is that on this time scale, if there were two mRNAs produced, you know, they just, they would look like the same mRNA. Right? But from, from this data, what they conclude is that, uh, is that there's typically only one mRNA produced in each protein burst. And there's not, there are not that many protein bursts per, you know, say, hour of the cell division. So they won't overlap too much. Right? But, you know, I'm sure that some, but it's going to happen at some rate, though. All right. What they, um, what they see is that the distribution of the protein bursts, right, we said it was, it was roughly uh, one per, uh, per cell division time, which w they found was 55 minutes here. Right? And they found that uh, the number of protein bursts per cell cycle was distributed um, Poisson. Okay. Right, so let me write this down somewhere. So number of uh, protein bursts per uh, cell cycle. All right, so this was distributed as a Poisson with mean, we typically write lambda of around 1, right? 1.2. Right, and they, they call this n cycle, right? So I'll, that'll be consistent. All right, so this is um, the n cycle. 1.2. Now, uh, you guys, you know, the Poisson is a distribution that we're going to be spending um, a lot of time thinking about, right? So the normal way that we th write it is that if um, it's a the probability of observing um, 
some number n. And this is, this is a number n bursts per cycle in this case. P of n, we normally write it as a function of the mean lambda, where it's lambda to the n over n factorial. And then for normalization, we have to write e to the minus uh, lambda here. Okay. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time thinking about the Poisson distribution uh, next class. Right? So I, I would say that if, you're, if, you, if it's been a while since you thought about probability distributions, then you should play via textbook, Wikipedia, whatnot, with uh, the Poisson, the exponential, uh, the geometric, and also the gamma distributions, because we're going to be using those uh, in the next class. Now, what the, in this distribution, what it basically ends up being is that sometimes you see zero bursts, sometimes you see one, every now and then you see two. It's kind of what, what this means. Okay. There's one other thing that is, I think, a bit tricky often, which is how they calculated that it was typically one mRNA that led to each of these protein bursts. Can somebody remind us, um, kind of experimentally, how, what they had to do in order to get at that? The average RNA per cell, right? And they, right, so they did this um, RT-PCR, right? So what they did, they reverse transcribed, they converted the uh, the mRNA into DNA, and they amplified to get a sense of how, how much mRNA there was, right? And, uh, and, and from that, you know, the, the formula, when you first look at it, it feels kind of mysterious or something like that, right? Um, but, you know, it's one of those things that you just have to keep track of, like, units and so forth. Um, right, so you can basically think about the, the number of mRNA. And this is, this is indeed, this is per cell. Okay, but cell, this doesn't have units, right? But if we, we wanted the, you know, the exp the expectation value, the number of mRNA that's going to be per cell, well, that's going to be given by the number of the mRNA uh, per burst, right? Uh, times uh, the number of bursts uh, per uh, unit time. Okay, so this is some rate the um, bursts. And then also uh, times the lifetime of the mRNA. Right. Now, in this formula, there's also the added factor where they have like the time of the cell cycle. But that's just because this could have been bursts per minute, lifetime of mRNA in minutes. But then uh, we, if you want to put in the extra term, then you have to say, oh, the cell cycle is 55 minutes. So then you have to do that conversion of time into the proper units. All right, so that, that's what ends up. Are there any questions about what happened here? Okay. All right. Now, what we're going to do, um, what we're going to do next lecture, is uh, kind of go through a simplified model of of, um, of gene expression, where there's just some um, rate of mRNA formation, mRNA degradation. The mRNA makes protein. Proteins get degraded, and then in that model, we want to try to understand how everything is distributed. Okay? 
And we're going to relate that back to some of the experimental data in this paper. In particular, for example, this uh, geometric distribution of protein uh, burst sizes is something that you expect from uh, the most basic simple model from, um, in, you know, that you would have written down. Right? And so that from that standpoint, it's not a surprise. It was often assumed that this thing should be uh, geometrically distributed, and, and it was, and that's wonderful. Uh, uh, from my standpoint, I think that even things that we assume to be true, uh, we should still check to see if they are true. Right? Uh, and, uh, and in other cases, it may not be, and so forth. Okay. Are there any questions about, um, about this paper uh, for now? Okay, then I will see you uh, next class. Okay.